Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Bad on Paper Podcast. I'm Becca Freeman. And I'm Olivia Mentor. And I am so excited about this new series that we are starting today, which is highly self-motivated. We talked about in our episode three weeks ago how we are both writing books, and we thought it would be really interesting to bring on a bunch of different people throughout the publishing process and to talk about how a book gets made over the course of a series of three episodes. I think I'm going to learn so much from this. It's going to be great. Selfishly, we have a lot of questions we want to ask people, but... (laughs) At the same time, I think it'll be really interesting, even if you are not an aspiring author and just somebody who likes to read, to understand what your favorite authors go through to get the book into your hands. And so today we're starting with talking to an agent, then we'll have an editor, and finally a marketer over the next three episodes. And each of them will be paired with an author as well. And we'll talk about kind of their piece of the process. So exciting. So exciting. Before we get into our conversation, let's do some highs and lows. Yes. You can start. Tell me about your high. I have a bunch. I have so much to talk about today. So first of all, I had a no plans two book binge a whole series weekend, which felt incredible, truly incredible. And then the second thing was I went to a Jonas Brothers concert um, (laughs) that I got tickets for through Delta, they sent me an email and they were like, do you want to use 10,000 Sky Miles to get Jonas Brothers tickets at Madison Square Garden? And I was like, yeah, okay. And I kind of thought it was a scam and it wasn't. And I brought my friend Allie who used to work for me and we've become friends. And she's my, I guess she's not my youngest friend, but she's my youngest New York friend. And she was a Jonas Brothers fan in her, her teen years. And so we went, it was so fun. Do you have a favorite Jonas brother? You know, I don't. Are we talking like looks wise? Are we talking like to be friends with? What are we talking? To wear their wardrobe? Hmm. To date, I think. Okay. So we're going to go into it just full force. (laughs) I wouldn't have said this kind of in their first wave of popularity, but I think Joe, because he had his flat ironed hair and it was like a little Pete Wentzy. But he has kind of like longer wavy hair now. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I see that. All right. Well, solid choice. That sounds very fun. Do you have a favorite Jonas Brother to date? Were you a Jonas Brothers fan? Uh, I went through like, you know, when you're a teenager and you just go through like six month phases where you're just very obsessed with different musicians. Mm -hmm. I went through my Jonas Brothers phase. I was always a fan of Joe because he was the tallest. That sounds very fun. It was very fun. Oh, and I tried a great new restaurant that I've never been to because we were over by Madison Square Garden for the concert. And beforehand, we went to dinner at this restaurant called Chouquette, which is kind of newer. And it's a Mediterranean restaurant. It was fantastic. Oh, wow. We that got sounds great. All shared plates, not on purpose, but we ended up getting all vegetarian things too. It was incredible. Huh, that's kind of a weird area too. I used to work sort of close to there and there was nothing. So Yeah, Shuket is on like 9th Ave and 24th maybe. Okay. It is in a weird area. So good. Noted. Tell me your high. My high I my <laughs> I don't know. My high is that I feel like I have had so much stuff just kind of land on my plate in the last week. And I've just been needing a day where I just kind of like head down, do a bunch of work, hit a bunch of deadlines. And so I finally have had that today and I'm tired, but 
you know, when you just, you need that sort of boost of productivity to feel like you can finally just like get shit done. That's what I've had. So I feel good about it. And it's giving me the confidence that I can do all of the other things that I have to do, which there's still so much, but yeah. And I feel like sometimes when you can be productive, you can then like ride that from like one task to the next versus when you're feeling unmotivated, you're like, ugh. Exactly. Productivity begets more productivity sometimes. Yes. So I'm going to try to ride this wave as long as I can. We'll see. What is your low? Um, My low is the opposite. I am feeling very unmotivated to work. So we're recording this in advance. I'm going on vacation next week, going to France. It was a long weekend last weekend. I just feel very unmotivated. I'm like, can I just... I I understand. Can I just do nothing until I'm back from vacation? Um, (laughs) I told you before we started recording, I'm I'm trying to finish this draft of my book before I leave. So I'm like, heads down. I finished editing a chapter that was really messy this morning. Then I have to write three new chapters and edit the epilogue. So I'm like, the end's in sight. Like, you're at at 90%. Just like, just do it. And you can do it. It's so exciting. I have forced myself, but it feels like pulling teeth. I just have no motivation yeah. right now. I, I, I completely understand. I am kind of there, but still I have no choice because I have so many deadlines that I just have to move forward anyway. But at least Paris is like at the end. Yeah, it's my light at the end everything. of the tunnel. <laughs> That's an incredible light at the end of the tunnel. Agree. What's your low? Oh, my low. Okay, so I should preface this by saying if you've ever had any like eating disorder, disordered eating, trigger warning, because I know talking about weight and weighing yourself can sometimes be hard for people. But I don't really weigh myself anymore, maybe like once a year, because it generally sends me into a spiral, no matter what the number is, and gets me into like unhealthy habits. I don't weigh myself. I try not to. It's not good for my mental health. And instead, I just try to, you know, exercise and focus how that makes me feel and not how it's reflected on the scale. And that's been really good for me. But I was having a rough week. I was about to get my period. And I don't know why. But sometimes I go to this place when I'm feeling really bad where I'm like, how can I make this worse? Oh, God. (laughs) And I'm like, like, okay, let me just weigh myself. And it was a really not great choice for me in that moment. And I felt like shit. And yeah, I just and I knew I knew what would happen. Like I knew the spiral that would take place regardless of what the number was. And yet I still did it. I don't know if you've ever been there where you're like, I know I shouldn't do this. I know it will only make me feel bad. And yet here I am. I don't know. So, yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. That sucks that you're in this like spiral. But it feels like you at least have a strong awareness around kind of like the pattern and what you're doing as opposed to kind of just being along for the ride. Yeah, it's kind of why I wanted to, I debated like what my low was going to be this week when I was going to talk about it. and I was like, you know what, why don't I just speak this out loud and acknowledge to myself that it's not good that I did this, but that it doesn't have to be like a pattern now. You know, I can choose to not do that again and make other choices that are better for my mental health. So 
I feel better, actually, after saying it out loud. Oh, good. So, yeah. Sometimes naming things is important, like just saying it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, there we go. (laughs) Onward. Before we get into this episode, I wanted to take a quick desperation minute. We've been getting so many nice DMs. Thank you so much to people who have taken the time to DM us about how they're really loving the dynamic on the podcast. If you like this, share it on your Instagram story and we'd really appreciate it. Yes, I echo everything Becca said. I've gotten a few messages this week, actually, from people who started listening because they discovered the podcast through me. So if you are one of those new people, yeah, share, review. It would be very kind and very appreciated. Yeah, I feel like growing a podcast is hard. Word of mouth is really the most valuable thing, hearing about it from a friend. Absolutely. Let's take an ad break. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. So let's do a little bit of a quick story time with everyone. So the other day I was talking to my therapist about feelings, emotions, all of that fun stuff, and something about work came up. And I communicated to her that I was feeling frustrated and unsure of myself with this particular work issue. And then I kind of stopped myself and I said, you know, this isn't important. We don't have to talk about this. This isn't a big deal. And you know what she said? She said, well, work is a part of your everyday life. And we can talk about that here, too. Would you like to talk about that more? And I thought, you know, actually, I really would like to talk about it more. This is a great example of why I love talking about therapy and BetterHelp online therapy in particular. It's just a great way to remind others and myself that therapy is about making your everyday life easier and taking care of yourself regularly and taking care of your brain regularly, whether you're dealing with major life changes or everyday work stress. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, or even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. If you're unsure about therapy, think about the last time you were feeling burnt out or stressed about a work project. Don't you wish you had someone you could call or message and talk through all your feelings and frustrations with? Someone whose actual job it is to listen to you without judgment or interruption. That sounds pretty good, right? It really does. And to think of it another way, consider all the other things you take care of in your life before you take care of your own mind and your own well-being. How well would you take care of your car, for example, if you had to keep the same one your entire life? That's how our brains work. So why don't we treat them that way too? Meeting with a therapist regularly is one of the best, easiest ways to take care of our own brains and take it from me, it feels pretty great. If the idea of having dedicated time to focus on yourself regularly sounds good to you, try booking a session with a therapist on BetterHelp today. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash badonpaper. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash badonpaper. So we are so excited to be joined today by Taylor Haggerty, who is an agent at Root Literary, representing commercial fiction for teens and adults. She's been with the agency since it opened in 2017, and prior to that, worked at Waxman Level Literary Agency in Gersh. She's a graduate of UC Santa Barbara and Emerson College and lives in California with her husband, dog, and a whole bunch of citrus trees. 
Iman Hariri Kia is a writer and editor born and based in New York City. A nationally acclaimed journalist, she covers sex, relationships, identity, and adolescence. You can often find her writing about her personal life on the internet, much to her parents' dismay. A Hundred Other Girls is her debut novel, and it will be published July 26th by Source Books. Welcome to both of you. Yes, welcome. Thanks for having us, guys. You are our first guests in this series that we are piloting to figure out how a book gets made. I am so excited. One, that you guys are doing this series. I wish that I had had this podcast when I was first sitting down to write the book. And also just really excited to chat with you both. Um, I've been huge fans for so long. Olivia, like I've known her work as an editor before she even started freelancing. And it's so exciting to be able to chat with my brilliant and amazing agent, Taylor, as well. Oh, shucks. Thank <laughs> you. No, I'm so happy to be here, too. And I know there's there's often a lot of information you can find on the internet about the querying process and less so about what happens from there. So happy to try and be helpful and demystify that side on, on my side, on the agent's side. Can't wait. Before we get into it, though, Iman, can you give us the pitch for 100 Other Girls? Of course. I like to think of it as an update on the world of the Del Wars Prada since it has been a decade and that book predates the rise of digital publishing. So our protagonist, Nora, has recently graduated from college. She's feeling a little lost. She's crashing on her sister's couch and she's tutoring rich Upper East Side kids when she gets the opportunity of a lifetime to work for her favorite culture magazine, Vinyl. Uh, But once she gets there, she realizes that there is tension between the old school elitist print team and the new, young, cool, woke, but for the wrong reasons, digital team. And she quickly realizes that there is a cultural turf war between the two and she gets caught in the middle, chaos ensues, and it's really a story about finding out who you are and separating what you do from who you are, the realities of your dream job, um, and coming to terms with uh, what it's actually like to chase your dreams rather than dream about them. There's a fun sister relationship. There is a like controversial crush on a coworker. And I think it's a really, really fun, but also surprisingly insightful summer read. So yeah, that's a hundred other girls. <laughs> So tell us about when you started writing this book. How long did it take you to write it? What was that process like for you? I actually started writing this book in 2019, um, September, late August, September of 2019. The truth was like I had a difficult conversation with my boss. I was feeling a little bit disillusioned with where I was in my career. I was an associate editor. I was really passionate about the work I was doing, but At this point, I'd moved companies and brands several times, and I was just feeling like I'd taken off the rose-colored glasses when it came to the media world and wasn't really sure where I belonged and how I fit into it. And I had this difficult conversation with my boss and then went on a trip. And as I was on the trip, I was like looking at job postings and applying to different companies and sort of trying to picture myself in five years and really struggling to do so. And the idea for 100 Other Girls, which at the time was called Clickbait, started percolating in my brain. It started the way that I think all great ideas do as a notes app on my phone. And I just started writing down ideas around it. Um, And I think in earnest, 
the concept had come to me years before. It's a story I had to get off my chest before I could tell any other stories because I had been so inspired by, you know, my first job in media and then all the other jobs I'd worked. And I, you know, I'd been witnessing all these um, different, like stranger than, <laughs> than fiction, you wouldn't believe it events that felt like too surreal to be true. And I wanted to be able to tell them the way that I had experienced them and the way that a lot of my peers had experienced them. But it wasn't until I got that final push that I actually started to write down like what that story would look like and percolate on what it would, the form that it would take as a novel. And on the plane ride back from that trip, I wrote the first chapter of the book, which you would be surprised how much of it like remains untouched. It was the sample chapter that I sent Taylor when I queried. It took me about three, four months to write. I finished it in uh, late November, early December of 2019. And I was so excited to have a draft done, really ready to get to editing. I just gave it to editor friends to be to read. And that was how the book started. How did you know you were ready to start querying? Yeah. So I finished it, as I mentioned, in late 2019. I did the first pass of edits myself. And then when I felt good about it, I sent it to friends to beta read and got a lot of really great feedback from them, incorporated it into my next revision. So I think I'd gone through like two major revisions after writing the original draft, which what took January and February and then March 2020 happened. And and I look back, I always think how funny it was that I had originally written in 2019, setting the book in 2020, not knowing what would befall <laughs> all of us in 2020, and then had to backtrack the timeline because it just didn't make sense. I took a pause for a few months, just didn't feel right to be pitching myself. I didn't feel as productive. I was so focused on protecting my mental health and keeping up with my loved ones during the beginning of the pandemic. And then um, it was really in June, July of 2020, during the summer of reckoning, following the killing of George Floyd, when there started to be major conversations about diversity and inclusion in media companies and in publishing. And the conversation sort of reopened around like, what does it mean to have like true representation in writing, in fiction, across the board. And I, you know, I felt like for the first time in months, maybe this manuscript that I had like sort of privately written and hadn't really told anyone outside of my small group of beta readers, no one at work knew I would, was working on a book. Like this wasn't something I was posting about or anything. It was like my little side project secret. I was I started thinking, well, maybe it actually does have added value. Like maybe there's a reason for me to pick up where I left off with this book. And I think that those conversations mixed with the news about like vaccine research and stuff like that really inspired me to start the query process. And I did not know at all what I was doing. Truly did not know what to do other than what I found via Google. If you Google like how to query, it's like the same 10 articles. I read like all the same 10 articles everyone else reads. And what I ended up doing was a combination of different things. I used like websites like Query Tracker, Wishlist, 
followed authors on Instagram. Yeah, I, I used like the regular resources basically to look up a number of different things. First, to look up the agents and their agencies, authors who I admired, who wrote works in similar genres to mine. And then I would look at who was accepting queries, what specifically they were looking for, other people that they worked with, how many deals they'd done in the last year, different types of deals they'd worked on. And I put together basically like a dream list of people I'd want to work with. Querying at that level is super abstract and it feels sort of like this will never work because you're sort of like cold emailing celebrities, if that's what it feels like to me. And I put together a query letter, which I, again, literally did based off of the like resources I found on Google because like I didn't know who to ask. So I essentially like followed the guide to a T. I'm sure that like half the people that read it were like, oh my God, this is like a cover letter. (laughs) But um, like I explained who I was, where I had been published, and then gave like a quick pitch. And the pitch that I gave was literally based on like the pitching advice that I give writers when pitching me. So I just like pretended I was almost pitching myself as an agent, which is always tell me who you are. Tell me your idea. Tell me why I'm the perfect person to work on it. And tell me why you're the like only person that could write this essentially. Like that's as an editor, that's always what I look for in a good pitch. So I essentially did that to Taylor and a bunch of different agents and I attached a sample chapter. I chose the first chapter of my novel because I think it gives a good intro to like the world and the characters and the setup. For fiction, according to the internet, it was very much recommended that you have your full manuscript done. I know that for nonfiction, you can send in a proposal and you don't need to have the full manuscript um, unless I'm incorrect, but that's what I've heard. How scared were you on a scale of one to 10 when you were sending these emails? Was it as absolutely terrifying as I would imagine? I was terrified. And the thing that I kept telling myself was, no one knows you've done this. If you fail, it's your own secret in your head. You have a life and a job and you're like a separate person outside of this secret book project you have. You have nothing to lose if no one responds you go on with your life. And if someone responds, you take it from there. But it was very scary. Taylor, can you explain to me what an agent does and what their role is in the publishing process? Yes, I can. So basically, at the very top level, an agent's role is to be an advocate for their author and their author's books, ideally over the course of their career. So when I sign a client, I have the intention of working with them you know, on multiple books, not just the book that they sent me over the transom on day zero. And so we handle everything from submitting that book to publishing houses, and even more specific than that, to specific editors, divisions within the publishing house that we feel like would be a good fit for the material, which is why, as Iman mentioned, you know, agents who have good connections with the editors working in those particular spaces really matter because you want to find someone who's a good fit for your work at you know, whatever house you end up at. So we're negotiating the deal. Uh, we are partnering with, um, you know, every agent does it a little bit differently, but oftentimes partnering with co-agents on subsidiary rights as well. So when you do a publishing deal, you sell, you know, 
a variety of different rights to that publisher. And there are also, you know, other elements and facets of a deal, such as, you know, translation rights around the world, which sometimes we retain and sell separately. Uh, That's my preference always. Sometimes the publisher acquires those rights, Um, you know, would be great to have a book adapted into a film or TV show. So we're negotiating those kinds of subsidiary rights as well, or partnering with experts in those fields to do so. Um, so that's kind of the like technical aspects of the deal and getting, you know, vetting contracts, those kinds of things um, on the income side of things. But we're also, you know, at least I see my role as kind of a big picture career strategist as well. So I'm particularly involved in, you know, every step of the publication, once the deal is done, you know, I'm on marketing and publicity calls and I'm helping contextualize that kind of information to my authors, particularly the ones who are going through it for the first time, because it is, it's a, there's a lot of new information and weird publishing nuances and quirks. And so that's where I can kind of help be a liaison, if you will, to what's going on. And then there's also part of it is goal setting and identifying like what success means to each individual author. And that might be wildly different. You know, one author might want to write books for kids and books for adults and some steamy romance on the side and like figuring out how that all fits together is kind of part of the big picture strategy that I'm involved in. So I think there are a lot of different dynamics and nuances, how the role varies kind of depends on, you know, their goals figure out what that looks like and how they can further any given author's career. Because that's ultimately what we are here to do is to be the advocate, ideally over years to come. Do you need to have an agent? Are there cases where you can publish a book without having an agent? So for the most part, if you are hoping to be published at one of the like big traditional publishing houses, you know, the Penguin Random Houses of the world or whatnot, those editors are only looking at accepting material through agents. So agented manuscripts, there are occasionally, you know, open calls for authors to submit, or if you meet an editor at a conference or things like that, there, there are some instances where you would have more direct contact, but even in those cases, what the editor would most likely do is then if they're interested in pursuing something, recommend that you, you know, partner with an agent in order to negotiate the deal and things of that nature. Because, you know, like we've talked about, there's lots of nuances to it. And part of why having an agent can be so valuable to an author is like we're doing deals constantly with these publishers and always fighting for better terms, better language. So our boilerplate contracts are really solid, particularly with the people we work with over and over again. And that can be really beneficial. I would say, you know, if you have a project that is a particular, you know, there are small presses where maybe it's like a niche market or there's a specialty publisher doing something that you're interested in. In those cases, there's often more of kind of a set terms. There's not as much room to negotiate or flexibility as you would have with one of the bigger houses. It's kind of like, this is what we're doing in this particular genre or whatnot. So in those cases, it, it might not make sense for what you're doing. So it's kind of about your, your goals. But I would say if you're interested in being traditionally published, of course, you can also self-publish without you know giving anyone your commission on, on that front too. But I would say that if you are looking at traditional publishing, it's, of course, you know I think extremely beneficial to have someone in your corner looking out for the things that might not seem like a big deal now, but could impact you down the line and just kind of having that bird's eye view and and the familiarity with it all. Let's take an ad break. 
Olivia, do you know what happened right before we started recording? What? My HelloFresh box got here and I'm so excited. So said it before, I'm in this like pre-vacation sprint trying to finish the current draft of my book and cooking is just not my priority right now. But I also don't want to succumb into that like total monsterdom and get takeout every night. And when I have stretches like these, HelloFresh is such a savior. And with their foolproof step-by-step instructions with photos, I get to have a stress-free cooking experience and make something delicious in 30 minutes or less without going to the grocery store. So tell me what you got in your box this week. I'm very curious to know. Okay. So I got the pork taquitos, which I think I'm going to make tonight. And I've gotten this one before, so I know they're good. And I usually try to do a mix of new-to-me recipes and then old standbys. And then I also got the white cheddar Wonder Burgers, which are Old Bay seasoned burgers. I love Old Bay. And I've never had these specific burgers, but I feel like HelloFresh does great burger meals that are like interesting. There's also, oh, I didn't get this because it wasn't on the menu this week, but there's this pork and Gouda burger that I always look out for. Anyways, I think I'll, I'll do the burgers this weekend for like a fun meal. And then I also got Italian chicken over lemony spaghetti with zucchini. It just looked really good in the picture and it sounded nice and summery. This is making me so hungry just listening to this. Same. It's like I, almost dinner time and I'm like, <laughs> I got to go. I just like want to make HelloFresh. I was like, lemony spaghetti. That sounds incredible. Yum, but- right? Yes, I've talked a bunch of times on here about how Jake and I are doing this no delivery challenge this year. I haven't done HelloFresh in a long time, and I just tried it again for the first time in a while, and I absolutely loved it. Since we're doing so much more cooking at home right now, it was a great way to mix things up and try recipes outside our usual rotation without spending a ton of time and energy looking things up and trying to figure out how to do things. This made it so easy, and there's something for everyone in every mood. You get to choose from more than 55 weekly options and then get pre-portioned, high-quality ingredients picked at their peak ripeness. I was really impressed by the quality of the produce, which they deliver from the farm to your door in less than a week. So if you have a busy few weeks coming up, if you're sick of all your usual recipes, or if you've been hitting the takeout a little too hard, I think you should give HelloFresh a try. Go to HelloFresh.com BOP16 and use code BOP16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. Again, that's HelloFresh.com BOP16 and use code BOP16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. What in particular drew you to Iman's book? I think the first thing that drew me to it was the voice. I'm such a voice-driven re- reader. And this is one of those like publishing terms that's thrown around a lot. But to me, what it means is that kind of that intrinsic quality to writing a, an author's way of phrasing things, the language they use, the tone that marks it as something that they wrote rather than an author three doors down. And so that like, it just leapt off the page to me. And I was just like, oh, this is a character I want to spend time with. This is like an author who has like command of the language and is like, it felt confident and easy to fall into. Um, And then, I mean, there's the concepts amazing and there's so much to recommend about it. But I think for me, the other thing, and we talked about this on one of our early calls is I'm a sucker for setting. And a hundred other girls has just like the richest, most vivid, fabulous New York you could imagine. And it felt so real and authentic. And you could tell that it came from such a place of love. And we talked about this because I'm a West Coaster and like 
I like New York, but I don't have the like deep seated like love affair that oftentimes New Yorkers or East Coasters do. And so for me to get so swept up in it when I was like primed to be like, New York is my favorite place in the entire world. Like I, I love New York. I love visiting. I go all the time for work or would. But I think that like really felt magical because I'm a very escapist reader and it felt so transportive and so fully immersive, which felt like such a treat, particularly in that dreary time. So Iman, let's get back to you. So you said you sent out your queries. Do you remember how many you sent? Yes, I think I sent... It's either 10 or 12. It was a really big range of people, newer agents who worked at agencies that I admired, who I thought would be more likely to respond to me, agents that were specifically looking for more books in my genre, who mentioned own voices and diversity, which are two things that my book has, who I would like to work with, um, who felt sort of like almost like at my book's level. And then I had a a list of people whose work I really admired who were the agents of some of my favorite authors. Taylor was on that list and who were like my reach agents who I was like, you know, cross my heart, hope to die, pray to your higher power. Maybe they'll see my book and respond. After you send your original query and people get back to you and say, oh, I'm so excited. I would like to read this. You send over your full manuscript to them, which is why you need to have it ready when you query. And then it's like an excruciating period of like waiting for them to read your whole book that like you and your mom have read. And that, like we were talking about scary, that was so scary. I studied creative writing in school and I've always dreamt of writing fiction, but I wasn't a part of any like writer's groups. I didn't take any writer's workshops. I never learned how to write a novel. Like I wrote a novel based on my experience of reading novels. (laughs) So I was really going in blind and all of those self-doubt inner monologues crept in during the period that agents were reading for me. Um, I was like, this is a mistake. But I was very lucky that a lot um, read quickly, which was a good sign, uh, relatively quickly for publishing. And I did get some passes, uh, very kind, polite passes, but passes from a slew of different agents. You know, the first time someone tells you that they don't really connect with your writing, you're like, okay, punch me in the face then. But that is actually a real thing that just, you know, like, again, another piece of feedback that you'll get a lot is that, you know, not everyone will connect with the writing. And I always like to think about, you know, some of my favorite authors who like, I would literally like get hit by a cab for them. Like I've given to my best friends and they've been like, you know what? I, you know, I DNF this. It wasn't for me. Not everyone is going to connect with the writing. And then I, Almost in that first week or second week after sending my query letters and sending the full manuscript, I got offers from two different agencies, um, but three different agents. One was an agent at a smaller agency that had worked with a few other people in media, and I was familiar with the work that they did on those books the two others from a much larger agency that like had their own in-house like film and TV people and, you know, the huge roster of people. And those agents from that agency, it was a mix of 
there was like a young assistant editor who was a woman of color who like really connected with my protagonist. And then there was an older, more experienced agent who had like worked on a lot of big projects. But it doesn't sound like any of these are Taylor. Taylor is my plot twist. Taylor is my like last minute love interest. Wait for it. And from the moment I had that first conversation with that first agent from the smaller literary agency, I was like, okay, done. Like, I don't need to talk to anyone else. Someone likes my book. Someone other than me likes the book. Decision made, I'm sold. But, you know, what I started to realize is that the there's a mix of things that you should take into account past them being enthusiastic and loving the book. For example, like their communication style, um, timelines, uh, parts of the book that they think you should revise before taking it to submission, you know, how they want to market the book. There are a lot of different reasons now that I've you know met some other writers that people end up not having like the best working relationship with their agent. And those are really important factors to take into account before signing with someone because you really become like a part, you become a partnership, right? So I was probably like a month into trying to decide what direction to go in because these agencies, forget the agents, like the agencies were very different type of agencies. And I had like spoken to people that they'd worked with. And I even had a long talk with like an entertainment lawyer who used to work in publishing, who gave me a ton of advice of questions I should ask them. I was in my own little side arc there. And then I remember Taylor getting back to me on the manuscript towards the end of this, a lot fell into place, not just because I really admire her work, but because she changed the game for me in the way that she communicated with me. I bring this up a lot, but I do think it made a difference. Like she was the first agent to suggest we meet face to face, to do like a Zoom intro call, to really like personalize herself to me, to make it feel like she was invested in me as a person and not like me as a creator of a product that she wanted to invest in. Everything that she said about like career building and looking at authors, dreamscapers rather than like the writers of book she's pitching is 100% true. And I think to have a conversation more so about my aspirations rather than just about, so where do I see the book was really a warm hug after a month of uncertainty. We just had like a really great intro call. I remember um, feeling like you really understood that the book was, you know, striking two different chords and that there were different directions it could go in, but you understood where I wanted to take it. I was already sort of like leaning in the direction of signing with her, but then I spoke to two of her clients and they both enthusiastically said to me, like, Taylor is the best thing that's ever happened to them. I remember both of them using the word strategic, which I thought was so interesting because like, I really love Taylor because she's like so kind and warm, but she's also, she's incredibly like smart about her submission list and who she works with and how she pitches books. And this was definitely ended up being true in my situation as well. Yeah. I mean, I walked away from those calls being like, I, I know in my gut what the right move is. Taylor, I'm curious from, from your end, if you find yourself in a different situation than Iman did and you don't get any responses from your queries, what do you advise an author does then? I know I'm a big fan of Kate McKean's 
newsletter. Mm -hmm. And she does something called the 50 Queries Club, where people have queried 50 agents and not heard anything back. Like, so what's what's the number where you should start getting worried? And like, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to put an exact number on it because it depends on, you know, there are, you know, a different number of agents doing YA than there are adult SFF and, and whatnot. So I think like looking at it more holistically in terms of how many people you're reaching out to, and then also how consistent the feedback is, because, you know, everyone's underwater. So if it's just taking a while to hear back from people, that's one thing. And if everyone is saying a similar thing, you can sometimes kind of parse, oh, maybe everyone loves the writing, but they're saying it feels hard to break it out in the market. And that might be an issue where it's not, the concept needs some like juicing up, or maybe you're just not pitching it as commercially as you could if you took another swing in it and might need to pull back and kind of think about comp titles or how you were pitching it to agents. It could also be something where like you're just a little ahead of the market sometimes like that happens where you're like, you know, people aren't ready for sexy vampires yet, but maybe they will be down the line. So I really believe there's no wasted manuscript, even if at a given time you end up pivoting to something else. But I would say if you're getting consistent feedback of either something about the concept or it's also possible, you know, if it's your first, first manuscript out in the world, like maybe you're close, but not quite there yet. And the next one will be the one. Um, So as discouraging as it can be, I think that trying to do the best you can to read the tea leaves and look for those through lines to see if there's any constructive feedback you can take and either tweak the query letter or take a bigger look at the project itself. And Aman, once you decided to work with Taylor, did you do additional revisions on your book or did you take it out right away as is? Yeah. um, Taylor and I did a round of revisions, which I thought were really helpful. I think that Now, looking back, they were relatively light. It wasn't like we changed a lot structurally about the book, but they were just really great, you know, pieces of feedback to help me clarify certain distinctions in the book, strengthen character relationships. But yeah, one round and then we were out pretty much like a month later, which is crazy looking back at the time, like a month felt like a year. Taylor, I'm I'm really curious because I keep hearing from I've heard both agents say this and authors say agents are the new editors. And I'm curious, first of all, like what this means. And I'm curious what your point of view is. I it's it's so interesting. I think it's fascinating. So I haven't heard that phrase exactly, but I think what it's getting at is a conversation that comes up a lot with querying writers as well on all those like blogs that Iman mentioned and everything is to how editorial an agent is or not. And my view on this, which I, again, I think some of my colleagues would definitely have a different take on it, but I feel as though I am on the agent side of the desk for a reason. Like I would never, I would never say that I am trained as an editor. I think I have a decent, fairly good editorial eye, but I'm, I don't get smarter with each reread the way that an editor does. So editors can spend so much time like really getting into a manuscript and each draft like pull, like good editors just pull more and more of what the author's vision is out, not making it the editor's vision, but like a good editor can kind of pull that out of the author. Whereas like by my third or fourth reread, I would be like, what if Brad's name was Dave this time? That would be new and exciting. (laughs) And like, that's not helpful for anyone. Um, So I uh, tell authors that I I think I always try to make a point of being very transparent upfront that I see my role as more of a, like you and I get it to the point where we feel really good sending out to the pros who will then get in there with you and flush it out further. 
So I'm more of like a big picture pointer finger, like the pacing starts to lag a little bit in the third and we don't want editors reading on submission to put it down and then forget to come back to it. Or like the authors are so close to the manuscript that sometimes I can be like, oh, we kind of dropped the subplot and never resolved it. And it's in their head, but didn't make it to the page in that draft or something like that. You know, and my authors are the experts in their craft and in their voice. And so I'm not in their like tweaking minutia level type things. So that's my my take on it. And I think it's an interesting distinction because some of my colleagues are really, really good. And I've, I have colleagues who like worked as editors too. And so they would have like a slightly different lens on it. And I think that can be, that can be great too. And then the other thing that I would say is that I also feel like, and this kind of falls under the editorial bucket too, is I feel like I can sometimes be a value add in terms of like conceptualizing new ideas and figuring out like where we take something like a kernel, like how do we build this into something that makes sense as a book too, or where we go from here. And so again, it's more for me, that big picture than the like really getting in there in the scenes. But also if there's ever a point when an author is like stuck, you know, we've been working together for a while and they're like, I cannot figure out where I go from here. I'm always happy to do those early reads and kind of get in there and weigh in. But it, it also changes when you have an editor you work with on multiple books and they are kind of, that's the primary editorial relationship as well. So I don't know if that answers it exactly, but that's my two cents on it for whatever that is worth. No, it's really helpful to parse from the outside. Like, where is the line between agent yeah. and editor? It's such a good question. And I think it probably does vary agent to agent, frankly. And when, you know, you've gone through that first edit process with you and you're ready to take the book on submission, how many buyers do you submit to? Like, what does that process look like? Like, how do you submit it? Like, what do you give the editors? Like, what is that like? This all yeah. feels like the magic potion part where it's like, <laughs> totally. Then, yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And then, and then you're buying it for Antinomal. Um, <laughs> no. So typically once we feel like the manuscripts in a place where we're ready to go, I write a pitch, which is basically kind of like a cover letter of sorts, another version of a query letter. Often I borrow from the author's original query letter, um, you know, kind of in their own words, how they're pitching things. And then I also, you know, will include a bio of the author, um, and, and I do a decent amount of positioning as well, how I see it fitting into the marketplace, similar books in that have been successful. And then I go out to editors and my submission lists, you know, it, it really depends. There are, I, I used this as an example earlier, but there are like a lot more editors doing YA than there are in genre adult SFF fictions. What's SFF? S- science fiction fantasy. Oh, okay. So yeah. So if you, if you have a book about like orcs or whatever, that submission list is going to look very different because there aren't as many players in the game as if you kind of wrote a, you know, contemporary or YA fantasy or something like that, where a lot more editors, there are a lot more players in the game. Um, So it varies project to project in terms of total number, but I, I do try to be very strategic about you know, which editors I'm going to, because I want them to feel like, oh, they thought of me, Taylor thought of me for a specific reason. There's, you know, I can count on her taste. She knows my taste. This is something that I could be interested in that could be a fit for my list. Um, And it's kind of, it's part recommending a book to a friend, like knowing their general vibe and taste, but also keeping up with mandates. Because sometimes you'll see, you know, editors say like, we were looking at our list for the next couple of seasons and we realized we don't, there's kind of a hole here for an orc book or, you know, whatever the case may be, usually not that specific. 
So reading between the lines on your your manuscript wish list, like orc books, you're like, tell if you really orcs don't are... want them or you really want no, them. No, no, no. Boy, do I have a project for you. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm orc agnostic. My, If you have an orc book, you should send it to my colleague, Kirsten. But yeah, so, so it varies a little bit depending on the type of project. But the pandemic has changed things a little bit too. Like when everyone is working remotely, I do do less calling than I normally would because sometimes you can't catch people. So, and also people you work with consistently who you know are going to want to see something, you can be a little bit more familiar with them and say like, this is the thing I was telling you about when we caught up last week, here's the book and here's the pitch and I can't wait for you to read it. So those relationships vary a little bit in the like how you actually get it to them, but basically send it out to everyone. Um, I'm super transparent with my authors about who has it. You know, if there's anyone, an editor who's they read every book that editors ever worked on and they would love them on the list. Like we talk about that kind of thing as well. And then it's kind of like the querying process. Again, we hope people read quickly. Sometimes they do. Sometimes it takes a while. And then we handle interest as it comes in to actually sell the book. Let's take an ad break. So let's talk about pros, the world's most personalized hair care and one of Becca's most raved about beauty products of all time, I think, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's I think that is a fair assessment. Okay, cool. So I'm a natural skeptic about most things, particularly beauty products. So I wasn't sure that I'd be that impressed by the entire pros experience. But each step of the way, I've been pleasantly surprised by just about everything. My favorite part, though, has been the sudden compliments I am now receiving from Jake out of nowhere. What? Just the other. I know. I know. It's it's really great. And so let me tell you about an example. Just the other day, we were sitting on the couch watching TV and out of nowhere, he just looked at me and said, your hair looks great. Very healthy. What? And look, my my roots are so grown in. I have not had my hair cut and colored for way too long. I had definitely not styled it that day. It's, it's questionable whether I, I had even washed it that very day. But the one thing that had changed recently is that I had started using pros. So I am sold on the whole experience. That is a major endorsement when, when a husband or a partner notices. So I'm, yes, I'm really glad to hear that you like it. I was nervous because I am just, I'm so sold. I've been seeing such consistently great results. I started using it two years ago. And when I first took the quiz, I told them that I wanted less frizz when I air dry. I wanted to go longer between washes and I just wanted my hair to be healthier. And they delivered on all fronts to the point that I think my hair is like fundamentally different. It looks so much different. I'm not stressed about those problems anymore. I don't know. It's incredible. Wow, that is high praise, but I believe you. It is really that good. And I am also so in love with the scent that I chose for my my shampoo and conditioner. The Corsica scent, Becca has it too. It is so fresh. It's like ever so slightly floral, but not too intense. It kind of reminds me of like drinking an ice cold lemonade on a beach in Italy or something along those lines. But it's it's a kind of scent that makes washing my hair, taking a shower feel that much more spa-like. And honestly, that is a high I'm pretty much always chasing. That paired with the results makes pros an honestly very close to perfect hair experience for me. And it's risk-free. So if you're not 100% positive that Pros is the best hair care you've ever had, they'll take the products back, no questions asked. Pros is the healthy hair care regimen with your name all over it. 
Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash B-O-P. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash B-O-P for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. So Taylor, I want to talk a little bit about money. I think that there's a misconception, or at least I personally had a misconception about how much money authors and especially debut authors make. Like I thought Mm -hmm. authors were like celebrities and Mm. we're, you know, like we're, we're like making money. Can you give us any sense of like the range one might expect to make for a debut? Yeah, no, this is such a good question. I think there is that perception out there and it's also very weird. Like I think in other industries, People don't just like flat out ask you what you make. Um, But sometimes like you will get that in publishing, which is kind of funny. Um, And it's weird because it's not like what you make. It's not a salary or an independent contractor. So it it is a different, it's a whole different beast. Um, But the, the truest answer I can give to this question is that it varies based on so many different factors. So of course, starting with what category and genre you're writing. So if you're writing a middle grade novel where historically, you know, you're, you're getting paid less upfront with the idea that there's a lot of back end. So authors to just back up for a second, you're paid in advance against royalties, which means you get a lump sum that is usually paid out in installments of somewhere between three, four. So usually you, you we did a deal today once the contract is signed and fully executed, you get a chunk of money at that point. You'll get a chunk of money when the edits are completed and it goes into production. So they send it off to copy editing and typesetting and all of that. And then when the book actually comes out on publication, sometimes it's in halves, sometimes it's in thirds, sometimes particularly with the pandemic, we started seeing a lot of post-publication payments, like six months or 12 months after a book comes out, which is obviously a bummer because the author doesn't get the money for uh, as long as, as if it were fewer installments. Um, so that's kind of just the top level structure of how it works. And then you're earning royalties on every copy sold and there are varying royalty rates. Adults are standard. They vary a little bit in kids, but basically that's the percentage of money that author makes per copy on a book. And that goes toward essentially recouping that original advance. And then once you've done so, you start seeing additional royalty income at that point. So it can be a really long process to see that money some, and that's what's meant by the phrase earning out is when you tip over the original set amount of money of your advance and start seeing additional royalty income. So all of that original advance, you know, a publisher is doing the math on their side, coming up with a profit loss statement the best they can. They don't have a crystal ball, but they're trying to project like, you know, how many copies of this do we think we're going to sell? And, and so that's really dependent on categories and expectations. Um, you know, it, it's very different for a, for a middle grade than it is for a romance. In the last couple of years, romance has changed a lot. It used to be mass market and now it's trade paperback. And that changes the math because your royalty rates are different. So there are a bunch of factors like that that go into any given advance. And another big one I would say that impacts things are rights. So if we give the publisher all the rights in the world to do translation copies, they can use that income toward turning a profit. Whereas if we retain them, then the publisher can't factor that into their PL. So if we're selling rights to Brazil on the side, separate from our deal with the publisher, that's going to affect what they're paying you up front as well. 
And then there's the other piece, which I think is the piece that is more externally visible to people is like whether it gets competitive or not. You know, so sometimes you send out a book and you have that one passionate editor who knows exactly what to do with it and they snap it up and that's that's your deal. And other times you have more of kind of a feeding frenzy where you have a bunch of editors who all have visions for it, all get the signups from their team and you that's going to drive up the price because an advance is not a referendum on like how good any work is or anything like that. And it says much more about what a publisher needs to do to acquire it the first point than it does about how much it will ultimately be, you know, the value of it, you know, years down the line. So we've had situations before where, you know, you do a two book deal up front. So you sell an author's debut and untitled number two, whatever they do next. And maybe it wasn't super competitive or it was a little ahead of the market and the comps were a little trickier. So it was a more modest advance. And then that second book becomes absolutely blows up, or maybe the first one does, and you sell a million copies, and then you have royalty money flowing in from the sky. And then you have a lot more negotiating power to go back for your next deal and say, okay, well, clearly we should see more of this up front. I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but that's kind of the scope of things. And there are pros and cons to everything. There's pros and cons to which rights you sell. There's pros and cons to big advances and little advances and what that means. I don't even want to say big and little because it's also relative to, you know, genre category timing and, and what the goals of the author are. So these are the conversations that without kind of getting into the nuance and the specific components of any given deal are kind of inherently a little abstract, which I think contributes to the sense of like, oh, like, I've heard of this book, therefore the author must be, uh, you know, have 12 yachts. Um, (laughs) And I don't know that I know of any authors who have 12 yachts or what you would do with 12 yachts. You know, you sometimes you'll hear too, like these big deal announcements and then you realize, oh, well, they, they bought three books right out of the gate. That wasn't everything for one book. So when people start getting into how many figures things were, and there's often a lot of like nuance and um, varying degrees of like which rights and how many books and things like that that contribute to the conversation that is like hard to have on Twitter, frankly. Yeah. Huh. I would have never thought of all of that. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> I will recommend if anyone listening wants somebody to like talk actual dollars and cents, I listened to a really interesting podcast series a few years ago that first draft with Sarah Any did. And it yeah. was a, a series with, it was like a podcast within a podcast. And the episodes are called Track Changes. And she had a few different agents on to talk about advanced expectations within different categories. And they did go through some of those nuances of children's right. versus so, middle grade mm-hmm. versus YA and, and talked about some averages and then also talked a little bit about, you know, some of those crazy outside mm-hmm. Outside examples, I think, you know, they were talking a lot about in directly post-Twilight that, you know, yes. people were acquiring things from debut authors for crazy seven-figure deals that then, like, went on to completely flop. It's true. And particularly when YA was more of a growth market and they were, you know, the stores were adding shelf space and people were kind of scrambling to be like, oh, there's a need here. We got to buy up a lot of YA books. And that's very different than adult markets. It's, it's different than YA today even, although I do think that people still sometimes have that, like, frenzy mentality and chuck a bunch of money at you in a way, whereas, like, middle grade, for instance you know, you have a school list and you publish forever. And so there's a a lot longer of a tale. So it's just, it's a different mentality. And I would be so curious to go back and look at those. I can't remember when she did that. I have no sense of time anymore. I want to say it was like 2019, maybe. Okay. So so that's more current because I was thinking, you know, I, 
I've like done an interview about like romance, like a long time ago. I was like, oh, those numbers would be so out of date now because the format has changed and things have shifted so much. So that's another piece of it too. And, and frankly, that's why like, it's helpful to have, like once you have an agent who can kind of contextualize for you where their sense of the market is and things like that, to be like, oh no, they have more or, or like, no, this is really in line with what we're seeing these days um, can, can be helpful to just, I, I, honestly, so much of the agent's job, I think is that context since we're working across the board with different publishers and not in like a weird gross proprietary so-and-so got X way, but just to have a general sense of like, you know, now that we're working in this format in trade paperback and romance, that looks a lot different than when we were doing E only no advanced deals. So that, so that really kind of contributes to the decisions and negotiation strategy as well. Thank you for really getting into the sausage here. Yes. I genuinely think people think that like an editor or an agent will read a book and be like, this is amazing. And then it's, well, I guess we should pay a million dollars. Like, And it's not that at all. It also, I feel like there's an entitlement sometimes that I see when people bash books online where it's like, you got paid this exorbitant amount. And it's like, no, realistically, especially if you break it down by how many years it took this person to go through the process, it's like, no, this person made like a modest school teacher's salary to like make this book. And now you feel entitled to talk a whole lot of smack about it because you're like, you think you're punching up and it's like, "Mm, are you? Yeah, that can, that can get dicey. And then not to get like too boring into logistics, you have to set aside money for taxes and an agent's commissions coming off the top of that. And so I think it's really important to, I always tell my authors that even in very big, exciting, competitive situations, like to really look at that and publishing slow too. That's the other thing, you know, if we sold a book today, it might not come out for a year and a half or two years, depending on when we're publishing in a variety of different reasons. And so the way that that money flows is, you know, 12 yachts are not delivered to your doorstep right up front necessarily. And so there's, there's that piece of it too. And it's this weird mashup of it's, a creative industry, but it's also a business. And as an agency, we pride ourselves on, you know, trying to empower authors to to engage with that business side of things too, and give a lot of resources and, you know, just kind of tips and tricks and things so that they can ideally like make it a really sustainable, healthy career and buy 12 yachts one day if that's what they want. Taylor, my last question for you, how does the process vary for an author's second book versus their first? Do you have to work with the same publisher like, what does that mean once you've already sold a book? So most publishing contracts are going to have what's called an option clause in them, which basically gives the publisher the right to see your next material first before you go out and shop it wide. And then there's a period where you, you know, they have however many days to consider and try and reach a deal if they're interested in pursuing it. That doesn't obligate you to take it. You're not like, you know, beholden to them forever and ever, but it's kind of like a first, a first look and... Hollywood terms or whatnot. And so if you did a two book deal, that would come into play on your third book. If you did a one book deal, that would come into play on your second book. And assuming everything's going well, it can be really nice to continue working with the same team and build out, you know, your career at a publishing house with the same team with an editor you trust. That said, like sometimes things, sad things happen, like your editor leaves or your whole team leaves, or it doesn't make sense, or your, the author's next book is really different and the visions aren't lining up. And in that case, it's kind of a similar thing where you regroup and figure out what the next strategy would be and then take it out. And so it can it can shake out a lot of different ways. But I 
I personally love you get the partnership right the first time and you can kind of continue building, strategizing together on how you build on the success of the first book and continue on. So that's kind of the dream scenario. And then, you know, depending on where we are in the process, ideally we could get you raised the next time around and negotiate a new with the same editor for the next book. I'm on one last question. Can you tell us, is there any... I guess one piece of advice or anything you wish you knew going in that you'd want to pass on to somebody going through this process? Oh my gosh. Um, so many. I think that like, I really knew nothing about the publishing process before getting into it. And I'm constantly surprised by like the nuances that Taylor is bringing up. Um, it was so frustrating for me, especially at the beginning um, to get like a lot of the feedback that she was giving you guys, for example, on money and advances was the same feedback that I was getting as I entered the process. And to be told every single deal is different and every single book is different when you just want to get a sense of like what your life is going to look like for the next couple of years. I'm a planner. I was like, oh, I'm living in hell like forever now. But the truth really is there's no point in comparing your book, your writing, your deal, your author journey with anyone else's because it is dependent on so many different subjective factors and it can change really at the drop of the hat and every single book is going to be a different experience. I think that like I went in being like, well, I want to become an author like these authors I admire. I want to have this kind of career and I just think that that was the wrong attitude to have because I have been truly like surprised every step of the way. There's so much I just did not realize about how publishing works that I now feel like extremely humbled by. And, you know, I think that publishing is a very slow, long process. This book is, I'm a month out. Today is uh, like 30 days out. I this book is three years in the making. Like I've, I finished this in 2019. It's 2022. I've been, I've been basically like the girl who cried book. I've been telling everyone I wrote a book and it just hasn't materialized. So it's pretty crazy how long it takes really to practice patience and try to like stay present and enjoy every step of the process and to really just enjoy like getting it, like being able to talk to readers about it. Like that has been by far the coolest part. Like I, I've all, that's always been my favorite part of writing is being able to like write something vulnerable and intimate and then share it with someone else and have them interpret it in a different way and connect with it in a different way. And a, a book is so different than a personal essay, which is was my bread and butter. That has been the most rewarding part of all of it, especially as a reader, because I know what it's like to want to talk to authors about books of theirs that I love. So on the other end of that super surreal. Thank you so much for sharing so much wisdom with us. Can you tell us where people can find you if they want to keep up with you on the internet? Yes, absolutely. So the agency website is rootliterary.com. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at rootliterary. And are you accepting queries if people want to query you right now? Yes, I am. And where do they find what you're, what you're interested in? Um, so I have a publisher's marketplace page under my name, and it is linked through our photos on the agency website under submissions. Amazing. So Iman, do you want to tell people when your book is coming out, where they can buy it, where they can find you and follow you and all of that fun stuff? Yes, please. Um, 
you can find my book, 100 Other Girls, in bookstores everywhere on July 26th in a month. I am so incredibly excited for this to finally be out in the world. But if you do want to support by pre-ordering, I would really appreciate it. Something that I did not know before entering the publishing process is that the reason that authors really hammer on and on about pre-orders is because pre-orders go towards your first week of sales and your first week of sales is what determines a series of factors that ultimately impact the book's success, including booksellers uh, making the decision to stock it in smaller independent stores, including bestseller lists like the New York Times list, which can later impact question you guys asked Taylor, like your next advance or whether people want to work with you. So that's why we talk so long when we drone on about pre-orders because it really does matter. So if you are able to pre-order the book, it would mean a lot to me. And um, you can find me at Iman Hariri Kia on Instagram and on TikTok. I would absolutely love a chance to chat with you about book, but also about anything. I just finished the summer. I turned pretty. So if you guys want to talk about that, I've read both the series and watched the show. I think I'm team Conrad. That's, that's me. And thank you guys so much for giving me the chance to, um, come on and chat with you today. This has been so much fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. Of course. Shall we get into some end matter? Yes. Let's talk about obsessions. I kind of want to talk to you about both of these TV shows. So Hit me with your thoughts and your feelings. I had trouble choosing obsessions. I will talk about my new Trader Joe's obsessions next week because this felt more pressing. Oh. Okay. So first of all, I'm really angry because we're recording in advance and this makes it seem like I'm late to the party, but I want everyone to know that I was like the most prompt. So I want to talk about The Summer I Turned Pretty. I watched it the day it came out over the course of 16 hours. Olivia, I am a 35-year-old woman, and I'm having a breakdown about this. Like, if I were 16, this would be my entire personality. I understand. I watch most of it. I think this is Twilight for a new generation. Different. Completely different. Really? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Equally good soundtrack. Like, there's going to be teams. Like, I, oh my God, such a good soundtrack. I am obsessed with this show. I've only seen Team Conrad. Oh, there's Team Jeremiah, people. Oh, interesting. Okay. I, well, I haven't finished, so no spoilers, but. Oh, my God. It makes me want to be young. It makes me. Well, first of all, it made me incredibly, like, ragingly jealous that I don't own a beach home. Oh, my gosh. it ugh, It's beautiful. It's very beautiful. I want to break up a family. I want to fall in love with two brothers. Oh, my God, Olivia. This show I'm going to have to rewatch this. Like, I know this. Okay, so I'm really curious about your thoughts about The Time Traveler's Wife, which okay, I so my see you have Okay, so my other obsession is The Time Traveler's Wife. <laughs> okay, Rachel said it was terrible. She watched it right when it came out, watched the first episode. She said it was terrible. So I didn't even – I didn't watch it. And then Grace said she liked it. And Grace and I have very different tastes sometimes. So I, like, I don't know. On Sunday night, I was like out of TV and I was like, let me just try it. Olivia, full addiction. So good. I think it's great. 
I'm ready I, to be the show's only fan. Nobody is talking about no, this. No. Nobody seems to like it. I enjoy it as well. Um, so I started watching it when I was sick. And it was like the perfect show because there was a bunch of episodes that have been like sort of building up. I like it. I don't think they have much chemistry. What do you think of that? I I think they do have chemistry. I think that she has chemistry for him. And I think he's playing it right where it's like in the series, it's mostly she's known him since she was a kid and he's mm-hmm. just meeting her. So I feel like he's it just has like more of a natural reluctance. OK, I, I could. I that's a good point. That's a good interpretation of it. I was not bothered by by the relationships. Also, Theo James is like textbook anatomy Leonardo da Vinci perfect. And he is oh, naked man, the entire beautiful. show. He is naked the entire show. <laughs> it's it's the whole thing. Sometimes there's two of him. Sometimes there's two naked, naked him. Both. It's I really like it. It's not the worst thing. <laughs> I finished it last night. I was really sad there were only six episodes. And I think they it was very creative because I was talking to another friend about this the other day at Drinks. And she was like, well, do you think there'll be a season two? And I was like, based on the book and like the other movie, like I was like, I don't know how they do a season two. And now I'm like, oh, this is really interesting. I think there could be a season two. Oh, I haven't watched the final episode. So I'm I'm very interested to see. What is yours? Mine is... I don't okay, so I don't I will preface this by saying I do not subscribe to many newsletters. Not because I don't want to, I just haven't. But my friend Ayana, who's also been on the podcast, Ayana Lage, she suggested this newsletter by this writer named Katie Hawkins Gar. And it's called My Sweet Dumb Brain. And it's a Substack. What a great name. Yeah. And so I've only received one email and it was sort of all about different ways you can deal with when you just feel like your brain is like all jumbled up, like you can't focus, it's too hot outside, you can't deal with anything, you feel a little bit, you don't have any hope. (laughs) Anyway, it was just very creative. And apparently in the newsletters, they have like an essay every week, usually. And I'm just really curious to read more. I don't know much beyond that. I think it's worth subscribing. Interesting. Tell me about what you've been reading lately. Okay. So read two books. I read the new Ellen Hildebrand, Hotel Nantucket, which came out in June. Loved it. This is kind of the hotel version of the Blue Bistro. So that's at a restaurant. This is at a hotel. There's some major crossover. There's like one major crossover character from that book. Loved it. I did not think I was going to love it because from like the very first chapter, one of the narration points of view is a ghost. Oh, wow. Her previous book had a very strong ghost afterlife plot line, and I did not end up liking that one. And I was like, ooh, she's like really leaning into the ghost stuff. I don't know how I feel about this. The ghost ended up being one of my favorite points of view. So I really enjoyed it. (laughs) I read it in, I don't know, like two days. Loved it. Then I read Counterfeit by Kristen Chen. I whipped through this. Oh, this is on my list. I whipped through this. This is about two women who are running a counterfeit luxury bag empire. And I mean, first of all, like what a creative plot line. And I think this might be very akin to the art heist plot line where like 
it's not art and I guess we're not stealing it, but it was like there, there was a lot that reminded me of art heist, which is one of my favorite niche book topics. Loved it. Okay. Is it like a thriller? Is it like a non-murdery thriller? It's crime. Or is it? It's, it's, it's a okay. crime. Crime. But it's not. Okay. It's not a thriller. I don't know how to describe it without getting into spoiler territory, but it's basically like these two women who met in college. They're both now in their late 30s, kind of come back together. And one of them is a new-ish mother. Her her child's like two, and she's a stay-at-home mom who used to be a lawyer, and she's like very dissatisfied with her life. And she kind of gets sucked in to um, this, I don't know what you call it, scheme to to sell Mm. fake very good luxury fakes from China. Oh gosh, I'm I'm gonna read this one for sure. It's for it's sure. pretty short too. Like I think it's only 250 pages. I like Olivia. I cannot stress how how quickly I whipped through this. Okay, amazing. I'm excited to read. What about you? So you have two things that I feel very passionately about on your list. Okay, I've only finished one. The first is I started and finished over the weekend. Book lovers by Emily Henry. It was like the perfect thing because I like started it with a glass of wine and I finished it with a cup of coffee the next morning. It was just like a lovely reading experience. Great. Of course. (laughs) It's I mean, it was really fun, really funny. I texted Becca and I was like, oh, my God, the dialogue in this. I think I've never felt less witty in my life. Like it's just so smart and really impressive. (laughs) So loved it. Really fun. And then the other one is I've been listening to Tell Me Lies by Carola. I think Carola Carola Lovering. Carola. Okay. And so I'm about halfway, 75% through listening. I can't listen on like one and a half speed. It has to be just one speed. So I feel like it takes me a while, but I've been really liking it. It's very dark and creepy to me. I'm intrigued. I've heard such good things from so many people about this. This isn't a podcast OG favorite. Loved this book. Oh, my God. Whenever anyone's like, I need a book to read after I've broken up with somebody, it's like, read Tell Me Lies, the Men Are Trash handbook. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Truly. So good. Also, it is becoming a TV show, and the TV show comes out soon. Like, I think it comes out in the fall. Oh, okay. I I love that. Don't you just love when you read something and then like the movie is coming it's, out like yeah, it's just like I, I timed the TV this perfectly. <laughs> yeah, it's so satisfying. But yeah, that's it for me. All right, so we're in the past and we still don't know our book club pick, uh, but we have announced it on Instagram by now, and it's in our Instagram profile. So go check it out, and we'll talk about it the last Wednesday of the month, and we'll see what it is. We'll see what it is. We'll be surprised. We will. If you have enjoyed this and you would like more of us, you can join our Facebook group. You can follow us on Instagram at Bad on Paper Podcast. You can follow me at Olivia Mentor. And I'm on Instagram at Becca M. Freeman. See you next week. Bye. Bye.